It's so good to be worshipping with you all again this morning, and it's always a privilege and an honour to be bringing your word. Uh, but this week, I'd like to particularly thank Pastor Gareth for his guidance on this message. So thank you, brother, for helping us uh, understanding this passage. So as you know, in the past few weeks, we have been going on a mini-series on elder-led congregationalism. Now, the elders felt that it was important to repeat this message because this afternoon we'll be voting on the new church constitution. And it is important that we know what we are voting on. So if you can recall, we began the year by looking at Matthew 16 and examined what Jesus meant when he spoke about the rock upon which he would build his church. And also what he meant about the gates of hell and the keys of the kingdom. Now we saw in Matthew 16 that Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter and the apostles uh, upon which he would build his church. And Matthew 18, we saw Jesus giving the keys of the kingdom to the gathered church. Of course, we all know that with authority comes responsibility. And last week, Pastor Pedro took us through a passage in Corinthians where he explained to us that as true believers in Christ, that we are kings and we are priests in the presence of God. But today, we'll be going through the book of Ephesians. Chapters 4 specifically. And we will see the importance of maturing in the faith, which is the title of the message today. But let me put some context into this passage before we go ahead and read the word, so that you can have an understanding of the background to it. So we know that Paul is the author of this letter. And he addressed this letter to the churches in Ephesus, which is the capital of the Roman province in Asia Minor. Now, biblical scholars believe that he wrote this uh, letter from prison in Rome. And this was meant to be circulated amongst the churches in Asia Minor at the time. It was addressed to the believers of the church. And it was meant to be a letter of encouragement for the church. That they were to be thankful uh, about the blessings that they had in Christ Jesus and to live in a manner that was worthy of their calling. But it was also a letter of reprimand, where he was sure that they would be tempted by Satan to complacency and to self-sufficiency. And of course, if you've been attending the Bible uh, home groups uh, during the week, we have been going through the study of Ephesians uh, by J.D. Greer. And you will know that the first three chapters of this letter is theological in nature, where Paul explains the doctrines of the New Testament church. In other words, what it means to know God. And in the final three chapters, he addresses what the difference this knowing God makes to a Christian's behavior. Essentially, it is a manual of Christian living 101. And one of the key verses, as you most likely know, which is found on our website, can be found in chapter 2, where Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So let's go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 4, 
beginning at um, verse 11 and continuing through to verse 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to praise your holy name, Lord. We want to thank you for the opportunity to come and gather in your Son's mighty name, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is always a privilege when we look into the Scripture, Lord, to study your word, Father. We thank you for the wisdom and the knowledge that the apostles provided for us, the teachings to the church, Lord. And we pray that as we dig deep down into this passage, Lord, that you speak to our hearts, Father, that we can not only be doers, uh, hearers of your word, but doers as well, Father. So, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. My Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. So maybe you have heard of the saying, kids say the funniest things. Now, I'm sure many parents here can attest to the facts that our kids blurt out things that make us really embarrassed or blush. So them and I have experienced such a time. So I remember a time when we were in the UK and I booked a really fancy restaurant, a table at a really fancy restaurant for our anniversary. So we had this, the babysitter lined up and we were all ready to leave. I can't recall the exact circumstances of what happened, but the sitter cancelled on us. So we were forced to take uh, Caitlin uh, with us. So anyhow, we were sitting at the table and the waiter came to get our order. So Caitlin, being the mature four-year-old at the time, decided she liked the look of posh fish and chips on the menu. So she ordered that. So we had a very pleasant meal, and whilst I was setting the bowl at the end of the evening, the manager, who was really taken by Caitlin, came up to her and asked her, so did you enjoy your meal? So Caitlin says, yes, it was good, but my mother's cooking is so much better. <laughs> So talk about a no-nonsense, honest response from a four-year-old. And it seems like just yesterday, we were changing her nappies and uh, buying her onesies for her clothes. But as Pastor Ray prayed, you know, this is the final year of school and she'll be going to university. And uh, it is our responsibility as parents that we raise our children up, that they grow and become godly, responsible adults. And we pray that as parents that we have done the good enough for Caitlin to put her on the right path. Now, if we look at the context of the passage today, we see that Paul is emphasizing maturity and growing up in the faith because there was most likely some contention brewing within the church of Ephesus. 
There was most likely some of them showing immaturity. And the Bible teaches us that the purpose of the church is not only to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to grow in maturity as well. In other words, the goal of the body of the church is to grow in the fullness of Christ. So a congregational church government, and for those who may be new to our, to our church today, is what we are considering. And it is a slight shift as well. So let us just define what elder-led congregationalism is all about. So our definition is, the entire church body has the final authority under God's word in matters of doctrine. And by this we mean, by implication, it's the choosing of our leaders. And by discipline as well. This meaning, by implication, the choosing of our members. So in fact, by definition, New Life Church is mostly congregational already. So what do we want to shift towards? Well, we want to see that the church votes on membership and that the church votes on discipline. And what we saw in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 by Pastor Gareth is that Jesus authorizes the congregation to govern itself. He gives them the keys of the kingdom. Now Jesus has given the church the authority to judge whether an individual's profession of faith is credible. Every member has this responsibility to encourage and admonish one another and endure faithfully as well. So we see here in Ephesians chapter 4 that Jesus also empowers the church to grow itself. That the whole congregation is responsible not only for governing its membership but also for growing its membership as well. So let's just look at this text in a bit more detail about the growth of the church. And we want to answer three particular questions. We want to see, firstly, what does this look like? Secondly, how is the church involved in its growth? And thirdly, how does this relate to congregationalism? So let's look at the first point. We see God-given gifts that are given in verse, uh, verses 11 and 12. Now notice that Paul is emphasizing the gifts that Jesus gave. Christ possessed the authority and the sovereignty to assign spiritual gifts. And Paul is not emphasizing here on specific qualities and abilities that individuals have. He addresses this in Romans chapter 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12 as well. Where God has given gifts of wisdom, of knowledge, of healing and miracles, of prophesying, of serving, of teaching, exhortation, and so on and so on. But these are the gifts that God has given us in order to build and grow the church up. In order to build each other up. So that we can go, know God more clearly. But yeah, notice the emphasis is on the people who have been given these such gifts. On godly gifted men who were devoted to the well-being of the flock. It is for the growth of the church. So let's just look at these descriptions in a bit more detail. He says the apostles. So who were the apostles? So they were the witnesses uh, of Jesus and his resurrection. They were also commissioned directly by Jesus and were known as the apostles of Jesus Christ, which we see in, one, in Galatians chapter 1 verse 1, as well as 1 Peter. And essentially, they were the 12 men 
that Jesus called. And 11 of them made the foundation or had the, uh, produced the foundation of the church, along with one other elected uh, apostle, which, was, which we witnessed in Acts chapter 1, Matthias. And of course, where we see Paul joining him uh, on uh, the road to Damascus, where he was personally called by Jesus. Now, they were given three particular responsibilities. Firstly, they became the very foundation upon which the church is built, and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Secondly, they were to receive, they were to declare, and they were to write God's word down. Their inspired and authoritative writings constitute the bulk of the New Testament epistles. And of course, because their role and their qualifications were so unique, when they died, there was no legitimate successes for them. And finally, we see that the Lord gave them the ability to perform many signs, wonders, and miracles, which was an authentication of their apostleship. Next, we see the prophets. So who were the prophets? Well, they received a direct word from God. Thus said the Lord. The prophets pro proclaimed the word of God to God's people, boldly revealing God and revealing His purposes and His promises to the people of God. They have appeared to be commissioned uh, for the early church and their work was uh, exclusive to the local congregation. And they were not like the apostles who were the sent ones, but as with the apostles, their office uh, ceased with the completion of the New Testament. Now, they sometimes spoke direct revelation for the church from God, which we see in Acts chapter 11, or they interpreted revelations that already had been given. They were to be judged by other prophets and uh, for their authenticity, and they had to conform to the teachings of the apostles as well. Next, we see the evangelists mentioned. So the two officers of apostles and prophets were essentially replaced by the evangelists. The apostles and the prophets gave us the word of God by direct revelation. But the evangelists proclaimed the good news of the salvation of Jesus Christ to all and believers. They were responsible of spreading the church geographically. And essentially today we refer to them as missionaries. They are to preach the gospel. They are to see men and women boys and girls, be brought to faith in Jesus Christ so that this church, so that the church can be established. And finally, we see shepherds and teachers. Well, they were to shepherd and teach the people of God. And they were also known as bishop, as overseer, or as elders. But notice now Paul, in verse 12, draws our attention to what the gifts are supposed to do. The work that they are supposed to accomplish in the churches by equipping the saints to serve and strengthening the body. So what is the word equip? Equip means the idea of making someone adequate or sufficient for something. So the idea is that the pastor teachers are to teach the word to help the rest of the body be adequate or prepared to serve the Lord in accordance with their gifts. Now, we do this here at New Life church through the preaching of the word which is now on a saturday morning not a friday anymore but we do it through the preaching and the teaching of the word 
through the corporate prayer. We do it through our, our home groups uh, during the week. And also on one-to-one, -one, where we can sit down, get together, whether it be through counseling or simply a cup of coffee. But can we just add here that it becomes very difficult, it becomes an incredibly difficult task when some church are not attending these meetings, okay? Or making use of every opportunity so that we can be equipped to do the ministry of God. But now this also raises some interesting questions about congregationalism. So these gifts, or these gifted people, have the authority in the church. But who exactly has the authority? Is it the elders who have the authority? Or is it the church that has the authority? Because 1 Timothy 5 verse 17 tells us, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the elders will rule well with authority. And Hebrews 13 verse 17 tells us, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Is it the congregation or is it the elders who have the authority? But in Ephesians 4 we see Paul saying it is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. So notice in that verse who exactly is doing the work of the ministry. It is the saints that Paul is pointing to here. And who are the saints? Well, it is the ordinary people, ordinary men and women who are not pastors or elders of a church are doing the work of the ministry. So the majority of the ministry is supposed to happen through you, through ordinary people who are equipped to minister in the community by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, God pours out His power through you in the community. And leaders use their authority to equip the church. And the church using its authority to build itself up. Each using their own authority. So the congregation as well as the elders each have a responsibility and an activity to do this. Because the work as an elder is to pour ourselves into you so that you can do the work that only God has called you to do in the community. So the Lord intends you to serve the congregation, to serve one another, to serve one another for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as pastors, teachers, we are here to help you, to equip you, to do exactly that. Now this is exactly what congregational government means, and this is what congregationalism is all about. That we care for one another, that we build one another up, until we reach the uh, Christ-like maturity, is which, what Paul is saying here. So, let us make an illustration about this. A very well-known American football coach was asked, how has the game of football contributed to the fitness of America? Well, nothing, the coach replied. Why not, said the interviewer. Well, the coach said, the way I see it, you've got 22 men on the field who desperately need a rest. And you've got 40,000 people in the stands desperately needing some exercise. <laughs> so the Lord intends the church to serve one another, to help each other grow in Christ-likeness, 
and to be effective witnesses for him in the world. But sometimes it's not unusual to have a small group of dedicated, diligent Christian workers who are struggling down on the field, while the others in the congregation are sitting on the sidelines eating their hot dogs and their popcorn. One of the blessings in the Christian church is seeing people grow, seeing people who have been gifted greatly, serving humbly, and uh, living the life in the congregation. So the whole um, uh, gifting of the church is designed to equip, to be what God has called us to do and to be. It's not that we can sit back in our chairs and watch it unfold or watch it happen or pay somebody else to do the ministry of the work. It's so that you can be equipped to do the work that God has called you to do. This means that every member of the church is to be involved in ministry. It doesn't mean that you need to be an elder or a pastor or a teacher. It just means that you are called to serve. So let's look at the second point. We see, what is the goal? Well, the goal of growth in verses 13 and verses 14. So we saw at the end of verse 12, the emphasis is on building the body because of the teaching of the pastor and the teacher. It's not only to equip the congregation for service, but to build the congregation up. So Paul fleshes this out a little bit in verse 13. He says, Until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, in verse 13. You see, he's not only told us about the work that the gifts are to do, but he's told us what the goal is of Christ giving us those gifts, which is to attain to the unity of the faith. He's not talking about personal faith here, but more Christian faith. In other words, doctrine. And what difference we have, um, whatever differences, sorry, whatever differences we have, there is a shared unity and a shared faith that brings about a sense of unity that it is expressed in the congregation. And Ephesians 4, uh, Ephesians chapter 4 verses 4 says this, Paul writes this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now the faith in verse 5 refers to the essential truths of the Christian faith, centered on the gospel. Paul mentioning faith in verse 13 again, referring to the doctrinal unity that comes through the teaching of the word. And the more you understand God's word, the closer you become to God. And the more you will experience unity, that you will know God's word well. And Jesus addresses this in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 13, where he talks about the parable of the sower. Remember, the farmer went out into the field to sow some seed, but some of the seed fell on rocky places, some of the seed fell amongst the thorns, and some fell along the path. However, some of the seed, as we know, fell on good soil, which produced a crop a hundred times more. And Jesus explained to us that the seed represented the Word of God, and that the seeds that didn't survive were the ones that didn't go deep 
down enough. Only the seeds that penetrated deep enough survive. And J.D. Greer points out in his study that we need to drive the gospel deep down into our hearts so that it gets to the very foundation and the essence of our beings. And by doing this, we can grow in maturity in the faith. And what happens when we don't do this? Well, then the Word of God never penetrates us. We will never have a root, and we will never produce fruit. So let me illustrate this by saying that being part of a healthy church is the ability to discern. Because there may be many churches around that may be masquerading as Church of Jesus Christ. And they proclaim the message, but the message is very different. Or they may represent the gospel in some way or another. None so more than the prosperity gospel that dishonors Christ and, is, and dishonors the hope of a Christian. Rather than revealing Jesus, these pastors make empty promises of health, wealth, and happiness, where you will experience every blessing here on earth uh, in abundance. And of course we know that this is a false teaching. Recently, I read an article of an individual racking up a bar tab of approximately in the region of 300,000 plus dirhams. He spent, uh, purchased very expensive champagne, food platters, and uh, whiskey. And I was dumbfounded to learn that this individual was a pastor of a church. I know it might sound very obvious, but there are people who fall into this trap. So make no mistake, brothers and sisters, we are in a battle. We are in a war against the forces of evil. And these forces may come from outside the church body or even inside the church body which is what Pastor Pedro was telling us last week. The, the Puritan John Owen said it this way, We are either actively killing sin, or it is killing us. So let me repeat that. We are either actively killing sin, or it is killing us. And Paul warns the church in Ephesus about such human craftiness, about such deceitful schemes. Because look in verse 14, he says, so that, you, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So notice that verse 14 contrasts with the picture that we see in verse 13. Because in verse 13, what do we see? We see unity of the faith. We see knowledge of the Son of God. We see mature manhood. We see the fullness of Christ. But here in verse 14, there is no mature manhood here whatsoever. We see a church that is seen as children that are tossed about by every way and doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So we need to beware. Now we know that knowledge of the doctrine is important. But so is knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because in verse 13, he says, Unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So yeah, Paul is not just talking about academic knowledge or the ability to recite various doctrines of the Bible. Rather, he's talking about knowing the Son of God 
in a real, intimate, personal way. And Christianity is more, not all about knowledge of the doctrine, although this is important. It is about knowing God in a personal, intimate way. And the elders of New Life Church want you, as members, to know the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way. Not simply to know about Him, but to know Him personally as your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we know that, brothers and sisters, God is not boring. He has the power to transform your lives. He has the power to transform your relationships, your marriages, all your relationships. Because the ultimate goal is to grow in Christ's likeness. Because verse 13, let me remind us, until we attain to the unity of faith, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, stature of the fullness of Christ. And as we come to know Christ more deeply, we will experience a closer unity in Christ, which is Paul, which is what Paul is pointing at. So he's not just referring to our individual maturity as individuals, but as a corporate maturity, as a church together, in our relationships with one another, in the way that we love and care for one another, um, in our doctoral trial maturity, because we want the world to see beyond us. We want the world to see Jesus Christ in us. So the goal for the body of the church is to grow in the fullness of Christ. So let me ask you this question this morning. How are you doing? Do you need to grow in knowledge? Do you need to grow in love for Christ? Do you need to grow in Christian character? In patience? In holiness? In truthfulness? But not just individually. How are we as New Life Church doing corporately as a church? We want to be like Christ, right? Knowing Jesus, we want to reflect His glory. We want to love one another for the eternal kingdom. But how do we go about doing this? So in the third point, we see this is the game plan. This is the game plan that Paul tells us about. Verses 15 and 16. Paul says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him, who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Verse 15 and 16. So what do we need? We need truth, and we need love. We need the character of Jesus. We need grace, and we need truth. And notice he says in 16, From whom the whole body... See, the elders cannot grow a church spiritually on their own. We need the entire body of members. We can equip, we can do our part in loving and teaching, but ultimately everybody has the responsibility of growth in the church. It is very clear here in the text today, the body, when the body grows, the whole church grows as well. Which is essentially why congregationalism works. If you dedicate work to someone, you also give them the authority to do it as well. Now Jesus has not only given us the responsibility to grow the church, but He has given us the keys and the authority to do it as well. 
And you don't have the responsibility to grow someone who is not a Christian. Because that is impossible. How do you grow someone into Christ who doesn't even know Christ themselves? We can help guide them to Christ, but we cannot help them grow in Christ. That is why, as a church, we are given the authority to judge if someone is a true believer or not. And this is through our church membership and through our church discipline. But please, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Don't feel overwhelmed at all. Because, again, let me point in uh, verse 16. Paul says these words, from whom? Reminding us that Jesus is the head of the church. All this growth that comes about, all this change comes through Jesus Christ. We don't need to do this in our own strength, in our own wisdom, or our own ability. Christ is the source of the strength. Christ loves His church and will care for His body. Just as your head controls your body and directs the members of the body to care for one another, so Christ does in the church. And just as your head does not simply cut off a sore finger, but tenderly nurses it back to health, so Christ will do for a wounded member of His body. So, we can draw near to Christ knowing that He loves His church and that He cares for you. Jesus Christ loves you. Jesus is the source of this love and He will ultimately grow His church. We are just the conduits that partake in this ministry of building each other up in love. So be encouraged by these words of Scripture today. Don't feel exhausted. Don't become weary of well-doing. Take the small steps to one another to watch Jesus. Take the smallest acts of faith and do wonderful, extraordinary things with it for His glory and for our joy. Now I just want to close by the prayer that Paul writes to the book of in the book of Ephesians, which he mentioned in chapter 3. So let's close with this prayer together. So let us pray. A prayer for spiritual strength. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.